just when you thought it was safe to go onto iTunes. This is Next Level Guy. The only website that makes self-development as fun as going to the movies. It's time to take the red pill and escape the Matrix. What's happening guys? It's time for another episode of the Next Level Guy Show podcast with your favourite tutor, Ian Dawson Mackay. Next Level Guy is a go-to men's interview, interest and improvement website where I quiz the experts to find out the hacks, tips, methods and protocols that you can implement in your own life to take it to the next level and live happier, healthier, wealthier, sexier and so much more. Today's guest is Forrest Galante. Forrest is an avid adventurer nature lover and star of Discovery Channel's Extinct or Alive and Naked and Afraid. Forrest pushes the limits of human and animal interactions and his own mental and physical endurance in extreme challenges worldwide. By attempting to find animals that are considered extinct but may still be around. He also spends a lot of time doing conservation work where he looks to help endangered species. His work recently caused a stir when he was part of the team that discovered a female Ferrandina island tortoise a species that hasn't been seen for over a hundred years. He's a passionate free driver, conservationist, naturalist and biologist. He loves to travel and create incredible unique adventures in unspoiled habitats around the world. In this interview, we discuss his story, conservation, extinction, how we can help change the plight of endangered animals and how the hope of finding previously thought extinct animals can inspire the next generation of young people to help wildlife and our planet in the future and so much more and now let's get to the interview thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it you're a really hard guest to prepare for because you had so many questions coming out so many amazing topics it was hard to sort of dial down and you're somebody who's got a love and passion for animals like me so i'm really excited but for these kind of five or six people in the world who don't know who you are how would you, you know, how would you explain who you are and what you did? Because you've got a pretty amazing job. Yeah, sure thing. First of all, I think there's probably a couple more than five or six who don't know who I am. But um, uh, yeah, my name is Forrest Galante. I am a wildlife biologist. Um, I specialize in animals that are on the true edge of extinction. So much so that I actually generally tend to specialize in looking for animals that have been presumed extinct or declared extinct that I believe could still be out there. So it's a highly specialized field of, field of biology. It's, um, it's all field work. It's kind of the wild, wild west of, uh, of adventure biology, and that's my specialty. And so you're, you're originally from Zimbabwe. Now, when you were growing up, would you attribute the sort of love for animals from your, like your parents' business, or were you kind of into animals as a kid anyway? Was it a sort of natural thing? Oh, I mean, it's both, you know, like I, I was always obsessed with wildlife uh, for literally as long as I can remember. But growing up in Zimbabwe, having family that owned safari businesses and being constantly on safari and living on a farm, I, you know, you're surrounded by it. So it's I, I don't know which came first with regards to the chicken or the egg. You know what I mean? It's like I was a re- always surrounded by it and always in love with it. But, you know, plenty of other kids grow up in Zimbabwe and other wild places and don't go into wildlife. You know, my sister is one of them. She she, she loves the outdoors, but she's certainly no, no scientist or, or passionate about wildlife. So it's, it's not, you know, it was a chosen passion. It wasn't just something I was plunged into. 
so how did you find sort of growing up in Zimbabwe? Because I I come from a sort of rural place myself, and you know we grew up working with sheep and your cattle, and you know you knew people who were like slaughtering cows, you know, like to sell the meat and stuff like yeah. that. So you kind of knew where your food was coming from. You saw animals, you worked with them daily, and that was that the same kind of upbringing that you had, the kind of looking after animals and get like f- physically exploring and. Like, were you an active kid? Of course. Again, apologies about the peacock. Um, he's a real pain. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I grew up on a 200-acre farm on the outskirts of the capital city of Harare. Um, and it was, you know, we we never had a computer when I was a child. Um, you know, TV was something that maybe we would watch once a week. You know, it just wasn't the kind of childhood that most kids have today. Um, so it was always outdoors. It was very, very rugged. And of course, you know, being on a farm like yourself, I knew exactly where our food came from. We grew it, whether it was crops or cattle or sheep. Um, and you know, along with that lifestyle comes hand raising lots of wildlife and, and domestic life. Uh, you know, we hand, there was a, there was a long, I don't want to bore anybody with a long story, but, um, there was a, I fell off my motorcycle and got a huge cut in my leg that required 13 stitches. And that happened as I was going towards my mom to tell her, hey, I need to go to the hospital and get stitches. We found out that our, our favorite cow was giving birth. And uh, she happened, my mom was like, look, there's two things we can do. We can stay here and take care of the um, calf that's coming out because it's not going to be a clean birth because this, she's had health problems. Or we can rush you to the hospital and get the stitches. You know, it's one or the other. And so, of course, me being me, at about eight years old, I was like, no, we got to stay here. we got to help out with the cow. And so was born this little calf. And then I went to the hospital and got Stitches. And that calf's name became Stitches. And then we raised Stitches in the house, you know. And that's just one of a zillion examples. I had pet vervet monkeys. We had serval cats from plowing the fields. Uh, you know, I had tons of snakes, aquariums, like you name it. Growing up on a farm... <laughs> You get you are surrounded and hands on with animal life like that constantly. So yeah, I, I I knew exactly where all those things came from and absolutely loved it. I love that kind of life. You know, it's something I could only dream about. I mean, we had like sort of the typical Highland animals, but I was always enthralled in like you know when you watch films and documentaries and things and you know all these kind of different like things in Japan and you know it's and these these hidden away remote Himalayan caves you can find X Y Z you know. And, I can see the passion in my like in my nephew. He's only he just turned seven, and he loves animals. You know, so why do you think some kids just aren't into animals? I mean, I just don't get that kind of upbringing. You know, nature's such an amazing thing. But I think, do you think technology's ruined mankind in a way? You know, have we actually started depending on it now and needing the screen rather than the joys that nature provides? Oh, there, so there, I, I feel like there's a two-part answer to that. First of all, to answer your question, your your original, the first part of the question was why do, why do some kids not love wildlife? And to me, the answer is simply exposure. If you live in a city and you never take your kids to a park and you never let them see animals and you never experience how wonderful, even just sitting in a city park and watching squirrels run around and play with each other is, then then you're never going to have that intrigue, that passion, and that curiosity. So for me, I think... It's not like you have to grow up on a farm in Zimbabwe to care about wildlife. You know, I work with a team of incredible people, some of whom come from big cities, urban environments, others who come from, you know, suburbia, and it doesn't make a difference. They're all people whose parents 
showed them what wildlife was at a young age and got them intrigued, even if that meant sitting them down in front of the TV and showing them the Discovery Channel, it got them into it. And I think that that intrigue is what leads to people caring about wildlife. The second part of your question is, does, has technology played a, a role on that? And my answer is absolutely. So much so that um, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm actually a producer. I'm currently working on a show that is about disconnecting from technology and reconnecting with our primitive roots because we've become so disconnected from kind of human, you know, like natural human understanding. And what I mean by that is we live in a time and age where technology is a, it, we're, we're a single-use society. Everything's at the touch of our fingertips. If something happens, if something goes wrong, we can solve it by clicking a button on our phone or clicking a button on our computer. And in my opinion, to some degree, that is creating a generation of very useless people. Like they just, they're, they're people that just use their phone for things. And if their phone's out of battery or they don't have a computer in front of them, they're not competent. They don't know how to change a tire. They don't know how to build a fire. They don't know where to find water. Obviously, these skills aren't things that you need every single day living in the type of environment that we currently live in. But there's still things that are, you know, I believe important to human nature and, and instinctual. And, and I'm not wrong. And the reason I say that is there are, for the first time in history, many very notable, credible scientists coming out saying digital addiction is a real thing and it's creating an incredible problem with uh, depression in our society. No, I completely agree and that was what some of the area that I would like to cover is that you know how you found these different tribes and what the changes in how they behave and act compared to you know like what we call a civilized world but no I, sure. I 100% agree that we've kind of created a, a civilization now where you can order food you can order a date you can order a a taxi online you barely need to move at all you know it's it's really scary and it sounds an awesome program to be on um so can we go a bit into a little bit about your your amazing trips now how do you go about actually financing this i mean i heard you mention that you worked with certain universities but is it a case that you need to wait till discovery um say to you i want you to work and look into this kind of animal or do you look and think, okay, I need to go and look at this so I'll get funding from such and such government body? You know, how, how do you plan them, prep these? Because they seem such amazing trips, but the fee, the cost must be amazing. Um, so it's a it's a combination of everything you've just said, really. And that's, that's kind of the beauty and also the downfall of my career is um, it... So first of all, nobody tells me what to research or, or what to go after. That's my expertise. So the way that any expedition is founded is, you know, I do hundreds, if not thousands of hours of research on a species and delineate whether or not I believe that it's viable that the animal could still be in that habitat. You know, it comes down to a variety of factors. Is there enough habitat? Is there enough prey or food sources? Are there recent sightings? How credible are those sightings? You know, what is the area? What's the remaining ecology look like? And you, you add up all of this research. And if basically there's more pros than cons, then I go, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to go and look for this species, right? Let's take the instance of the Fernandina Island tortoise. I'm going to go look for the Fernandina Island tortoise. It's this large volcanic island that very few scientists have ever stepped foot on. It's too difficult for people to get there. It's the climate and environment is so harsh that human beings can't survive there. There'll never be a lot of footprints there. You know, there's this one animal that was seen 113 years ago. Is it possible that there's another one? Yes, I believe so. And the reasons are X, Y, and Z. Let's go. So once I have that idea, 
Then I start working with organizations. I'll start working. I, I'm using this one as an example. I'll start working with the Galapagos Conservancy, the Galapagos National Parks, the government of Ecuador. I will then go to Discovery and say, hey, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, here's an idea. Here's this episode in your words that I want to do, which is this expedition to this area to look for this tortoise. Here's the research that supports my hypothesis. Here are the government bodies involved. Um, you know, will you finance some of it? Will you finance all of it? And sometimes the answer is yes, of course, we'll finance all of it. You know, um, and other times the answer is yeah, we'll finance some of it. But you know, when I do the, when myself and my team do the numbers, it's like great, you you've offered to finance it, but that doesn't add up to what we need. You know, we need four helicopters. You've given us enough for one helicopter. And this isn't a dig at Discovery. That's they have a budget, and they, you know, they're they're budgeted to make a TV show. I'm working on a wildlife expedition, so there are two things that have to somehow navigate um, into being one. And then, you know, then we'll go out and look for sponsorship. We'll go out and look for donations. You know, that's when I'm working with the national parks. They'll say, oh, well, it turns out you guys own a helicopter. Do you think that we could actually use that for free? And if we do, you know. If we're successful in our endeavor, obviously, you know, credit will go towards your organization for helping sponsor the helicopter. Or, you know, hey, we need some manpower on the ground, like we need porters to carry all the water because there's no there's no drinkable water on the island. Can the national park supply porters? And you know, we'll cover their tips, but we can't. But you know, we need a boat to get them out there. And it's just this. And this is a long-winded way of saying it's a crazy collaboration and a crazy amount of moving pieces to try and put the puzzle together. That is one expedition, and that's just you know I'm giving you all the ex the examples and details on a single expedition. This year alone, I've done eight. So, um, or sorry, within the past calendar year, not this calendar year. Within the past year, I've done eight. So it's when I'm not in the field, I'm sitting right where I am right now at my computer working on uh, my next expedition and how to get back into the field. It sounds an amazing life. I love the, I love all that kind of stuff of. You know, like fighting for financial guarantees and prepping for things and, you know, pulling together big projects like that. So how do you keep, how do you balance it with, like, you know, companies who are wanting to do TV episodes with it? Because to you, this is a life passion. This is about the animals. But to them, it's about, you know, ratings and getting a TV show. So how do you make sure that you keep the, like, the scientific integrity, you know, of it, shall we say? against TV? Well, that's a that's a great question and you know i don't know i know a little bit about television especially more now that i've been doing it for five or six years and you hear these things about oh you know reality tv is all fake and documentaries are scripted and blah 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 blah, blah. i'm a hundred percent sure that some of that is the case that being said i couldn't be in a better home discovery and animal planet allow me all of the freedoms and flexibility to go out and do my expedition and shoot it the way I want, and they will film it, and they will edit it, and they will put it on TV. Nothing gets faked, nothing gets forged. Basically, I have this amazing team of about six guys that comes with me everywhere I go, and I lead the way. I am a producer because even though I'm not technically a producer, I'm just the one producing the results. Do you know what I mean? I'm the one meeting with people. I'm the one that sets it up. I'm the one that figures out where we're going and how we're doing it. And I basically just have a documentary crew with me that's a fly on the wall. Now, sometimes, you know, one of them will go, hey, man, uh, I missed that that when you walked into the door and started that conversation. Do you mind doing that again? And most of the time, I'll be like, sure, no, that's not a problem. But if we're in the field and we're working, they know, like, basically, just follow me and don't say anything. Don't get in my way. Don't say anything. You know, I'm not being mean towards my crew. They're a wonderful crew. But 
they are true documentarians. What they do is document what I do on expeditions. And then we dump all that media, we give it to the production company, and they slice it together into an episode that's usually very chronological with what we shot, and then it goes up on Animal Planet. So although I've heard that some people have a ton of difficulty and all the television is scripted and all the television is fake and things have to be redone, and we, we don't face any of that problem. Because that's the part I, I actually loved about the show was that sort of camaraderie, the the emotion that's built between you all, like especially when you you know you get the footage of the animal or that you were kind of really pushing each other and yeah yeah kind of batted heads at times, but for sure. But that's the beauty. That's the joy of it. It's like you could see that you were all into like that one mission, and that that's a great thing about it. But how do you go about actually prepping you and your team? Because some of the places you go are so remote that very few people know about it. Or you know, like how can you risk assessment something that you you know you no one else has really been into? How can you you can take a medic and maybe some weapons to, in case there's any like charging rhinos or anything like that kind of thing um but how do you actually plan for something that you can't really apprehend what you're going into i mean you said it you know you you can take a medic or you can you know put a rifle on your shoulder or something like that but there's ultimately it comes down to prior experience can you find someone that's been there that can give you some insight a lot of the time the answer is no and then you just have to do your best you know that's where as the expedition leader, it falls on my shoulders to tell my team, hey guys, yeah, you need your cameras, you know, you need your water shoes, that kind of stuff. But here's what else we're going to need. You know, this time we're staying in a swamp, not a jungle. So we actually need tented hammocks. We need to be off the ground. Um, or, you know, in this, in this expedition, we're working uh, below the surface. So you guys need all your dive gear, and here's the dive gear. I'm very, very fortunate because my crew, like I said, it's a very small team. It's the same team consistently. They're all avid outdoorsmen, just as passionate about conservation and wildlife as I am, just from a different field. You know, they like doing it through the lens of a camera or as a producer. They don't necessarily, they're not the hands-on one like I am. So we're really a very tight-knit team that all works together. And although I'm the expedition leader, you know, it, the, plenty of times I'll get a call from, you know, my buddy Mitchell or my buddy Johnny or Mark or whoever it is that's, that's part of the team on the show going, hey, you know, I was just doing some research and uh, turns out there's a lot of leeches. So make sure you guys grab leech socks. OK, cool. Thanks, Mark. You know, and everybody goes to Amazon and buys their leech socks. So it's it's just it's we're very collaborative. We're very much a team. As you said, one of the things you love about the show is that, you know, it's camaraderie and we're constantly bickering and all that. It's true. When you travel around the world. Uh, for you know eight or nine months straight with the same eight group of guys that's gonna happen you know like we've screamed at each other we've been at each other's throats we've you know hugged each other in celebration we've cried about things i mean you name it like we we are a unit and we work together and, and you know the i'm very lucky because the relationships i have from that show i can very easily say that those are not just people i work with but my best friends in the world and i think that'll happen when you spend most of your time around people yeah, because that, that's the bits I actually loved was the, you could see the genuine relationships. It wasn't like kind of, oh, let's do this. You know, you see like in some places that it's so kind of wooden, but in your, you could see the excitement, the exhaustion, you know, as you've been looking for things and then like your hands were shaking and people were actually just stunned when they seen the footage. Um, I think it was a tiger and, you know, it was, 
that kind of thing you can't fake. You can't fake that kind of bond that you built. Would you say that's the, the exciting part for you? The bit of uh, not knowing what you're going into, leading people. Is that what kind of drives you, do you, do you think? No, what drives me is the conservation message. You know, I would be doing this work whether it was me by myself with a backpack and no money or it was the way it is now with the big television production and, and the financing and everything else. It doesn't change. It doesn't change the work I'm doing. What makes the work so valuable. What drives me is the fact that even today, Ian, I probably received around 100 messages through my social network channels of people going, hey, my son is decided to change his major from economics to conservation. Or, hey, I'm a 45-year-old woman. You know, I've never really worked with wildlife, but I've seen seven of your shows, and now I'm volunteering at an animal shelter. And the list goes on. You know, it's these people that I feel I'm inspiring by this incredible platform of Discovery and Animal Planet to turn towards conservation. Even those that, it's not like you have to change your life. You don't have to work in an animal shelter or change your major in college. But just when I get a message from someone going, hey, you know, I never knew about thylacine before and I just ordered a book on Amazon and what a fascinating species. You know, something like that. It just spreads the message, it spreads the understanding, it spreads the conservation. And that's what makes TV all worth it for me. That's what makes having that platform worth it for me. On a personal level, you know, the thrill I get of working with a cobra in the field or catching a caiman or um, climbing a tree and seeing a lemur species that nobody else has seen before, you know, those kind of things, that's what really pushes me on through this field. You know, when I've got trench foot and the bones are sticking out of my toes or when the team's down with malaria or whatever it is, it, it, it's those moments that of interaction with wildlife that kind of let you see what the planet was like a hundred years ago, or let you see something that you feel no other human being has ever seen before. That's what drives me on, like, a personal level. I mean, how do you comprehend that? You know, how, like, when you discover those kind of situations, how, how do you take that in, that, you know, you're possibly the first person to have seen that animal for a hundred odd years, or, you know, everybody thought they were dead and extinct, and then you found a, a living example of it, you know? How how do you go in with a mindset of it? Do you look at it as in terms of, yeah, you're really positive, you think you're going to find it, or could, do you have to keep that controlled and think, okay, if we don't know, we'll stay sceptical until we find examples? You know, which side, is it your emotions, or is it the scientist side of you that takes over in that kind of situation? Man, it's such a delicate balance, because if you ask a lot of my real dry science friends and old professors, they'll tell you I'm way too emotional. And if you ask, like, my wife and my, my, my you know, my social friends, they'll tell you I'm way too dry and sciencey. So I, I don't really know which side of it I fall on the line. That being said, I, I am a scientist, so I always go in as a skeptic. You know, I know that going in, there's a one in a million chance of producing results, but that doesn't mean that it's worth giving up on. And, and here's why I'll say that. No one else is doing it. You know what I mean? No one else is looking for these animals. Every, the entire world has given up on them when that little label of extinction has been placed on them. So if I don't do it, and I'm not saying that I'm the best man for the job or the most skilled or the greatest on earth, but if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. And that's what, you know, so, 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 so I got to do it. Do you know what I mean? I don't have a choice, Ian. Like, I love doing it. I wouldn't want to do anything else. But if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of, that's kind of the the way that I go into it. I'm skeptical. I know it's a one in a million chance. A perfect example is when they were filming Planet Earth. And, and don't quote me on this because I, I don't remember the exact statistics. But it took them something like six weeks of sitting in a blind 
on that mountainside in the Himalayas to get a shot of the snow leopard, right? That's an animal that we know exists. That's an animal that's, yes, it's listed as endangered, but it's not extinct, right? That took them six weeks to see it. And that's an animal that's, that's very well known by science. It's very well studied. It's been seen by a zillion people. I'm looking for something way more rare than that, you know, and they had to sit in the, in the snowy mountains for six weeks. And, uh, you know, sometimes I only have three weeks. So the odds are stacked against me, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to give it my best shot. It certainly comes across as, like, th that's what you were designed for. You know, I think some people come in and they're just well-suited to what they choose as a career. And I can definitely get that from you. Every time I see you and listen to your interviews and stuff like that, It's there's true passion there. You know, like, that's what, you, you know, like you said, you'd be doing that if there was no success, if there's no television deals, if there was just you, you know, no crew, you'd be going out and looking up things. So when you do come across, uh, you know, go and look at these kind of animals, how do you make sure that you're not, like, changing the ecosystem? You're not changing, like, the, the you know, you're not creating an artificial reaction from anything nearby. You know, how do you make sure, like, with your equipment, is it use of, like, thermal cameras, like, motion sensors and stuff like that? How do you make sure that you get an honest reaction from animals and you know tracking methods and stuff without interfering with the the environment around it if, if you know what i mean um yeah i mean to, to be honest we don't i mean you you can't really do that you can't go into an environment and not impact it you know we have a zero trace policy meaning of course we leave nothing behind we don't leave any plastic we don't leave any toilet paper i mean we leave nothing behind you know zero trace means coming out of there with nothing but footprints behind that being said, your presence in the environment alone is impacting it. That, and then that being said, that's not necessarily a negative thing. You know, just because myself and my crew, a bunch of large mammals, are walking around the Serengeti full of large mammals, doesn't mean that it's negatively impacting the environment. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it's, we leave no trace. We leave no pollution. We don't burn anything. You know, obviously we make fires and do little bits of survival to get by, but we always break it up or bury it. You know, we do our very best to leave no trace. But we're not we're not impacting the environment. And then comes the question, you know, how are you balancing that? And you have to think about the greater good here. You know, we're on, we're on an expedition to try and prove something still around to then conserve it and protect the species. You know, get funding for it and continue the ongoing existence of an animal given up on by the planet. Like, does that not outweigh you know having six people in a habitat where animals haven't seen people before or? Uh, or, you know, interviewing locals that don't want to talk about it? To me, the answer is yes, a, a million times out of a million. You know, like, we're, what we're doing is a much grander scale than the microcosm of impacting, you know, a single snake or a single plant or, you know, off-putting a local villager who doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, because it's, it's difficult in that scenario of, like, people are used to like somebody that lives in such a remote place might be used to a particular animal and just deal with it kind of thing, you know whereas to as it's it's groundbreaking it's like we thought it was extinct where like how do you deal with like the local tribes and you know like local people to make sure that like to build that bond to get them in to invested in the project and to help you and not kind of stonewall you and sort of prevent assistance that maybe could actually help you be successful um well <laughs> interestingly enough you find that kind of westerners are far more standoffish about it than uh 
than local people. You know, when when I'm working on a species in North America, Canada, um, or Europe, everybody's very weird and standoffish about it. When I roll into the Amazon to a village that's literally never seen white people before, and I say, "Hey, I'm looking for this crocodilian," they go, "Oh, cool! Come on in. Smoke, you know, smoke some of this crazy root thing with us, or snort some of this powder, and we'll take you to see it tomorrow." And uh, you know, it's it's always a gamble. Like it's not always going to be the most uh, pleasant interaction, but I've never had a negative one, really and truly. And um, it, it just people are people are willing to share. You know, when you roll into an environment where uh, it's their expertise and you go in being honest being like hey I've never been here before I, I don't know anything about it um, I'm looking for this rare thing have you ever seen one and one person goes yeah I've seen one or a couple people go yeah I know where they are they're generally very excited to share with you and you know we bring with us candies and gifts and t-shirts and things that we feel are going to be helpful mm-hmm. um, but for the most part it's, it's there's there's very little barrier there other than the barrier of getting into the locations oh, I love that because it generally shows that we've like in what we call a civilized world has we've created these barriers of you know like with social media and we put walls up in front of each other and we've created like rules of engagement where you can see in these are places they're just so warm and friendly and they're open you know they don't care about what job you've got how many followers and likes you know they just care about being happy and healthy and loving each other and stuff you know and it's really it's almost sad the way we've kind of built up what we call like the civilized world you know so without this like the human interactions would you say that sort of nature would, would constantly be balancing itself out you know that what we're doing by growing and expanding into these different places is screwing up potential like disease um, remedies you know are we changing the way that evolution and natural selection and these sort of things would take place are we kind of messing so much with nature that we're screwing up potentially how animals are going to define themselves and you know are we basically killing things a lot sooner than they should you know are we completely tipping the scales so everything's offset? No doubt about that. I mean, we are in the sixth great mass extinction event, and we are creating it. Humans are way overpopulated. There's way many, way too many people on this planet for its carrying capacity. And, uh, you know, we're eliminating the resources. It's one thing to have too many people and then manage it, you know, farm sustainably, um, uh, grow fish, grow food. But, you know, what 8 billion people on this planet not every one of those 8 billion people can go out and catch fish every day or there won't be any fish left. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's obviously a micro example. But uh, we're absolutely, we're creating extinction at a rate that is just abs- unsustainable and we are reproducing at a rate that's unsustainable. We have become so good, and this is a very controversial topic, but, you know, I'll, I'll give you my stance on it and it's the, it's the scientific stance on it, whether you agree with it passionately or not. We've become so good at curing diseases and overcoming uh, physical difficulties that natural selection is no longer allowed to take place. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're born without legs in the middle of the Sahara, you get eaten. If you're an antelope who's born with a physical disability, you get eaten by a lion, right? That's just what happens. That's natural selection. Obviously, we don't live like that. We were able to cure that, and now you live in a wheelchair and you have a very nice functioning life. And that's great for the individual, but you're talking about messing with evolution and you're talking about uh, changing natural selection. That's exactly what that does. It changes natural selection. That 
creature, whether it's human, antelope, lion, it doesn't really matter, is now in the ecosystem where in the wild it would no longer be in the ecosystem. It wouldn't survive. Well, it's like with pandas, you know, I can't remember who said it, but they were saying, you know, they're really pointless animals compared to other animals. You know, they will not reproduce that they don't do you know they don't give you a cure for this disease they don't do that and they're saying that we like them because they're cute so humans will try to you know the conservation to keep them around and i thought i could see what he was trying to say that we like as humans we pick and choose the animals that we want to support and help and then there's people like you who are you know willing to help everything but you know are we is this our own vanity, the thing we want the pretty things to, you know, the cute things, and we're that then causes problems in nature because you're affecting the balance to prey, predator, you know, you're bringing the animals into areas they shouldn't be in because some, somebody's built a herd of whatever and they've escaped. You know, how, how do you think we should be looking at these kind of things? Yeah, I mean that's 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 what's called the god complex, right? Where we just we we feel that we have the ability to pick and choose what should be here and what shouldn't be here and how we control it. And the reality is we have to do that because it's human nature and we have to, you know, there's so little wild areas left in parts of the world that we have to manage them. If we didn't, there'd be nothing left at all. So it's it's a it's a catch 22. Like, you know, you want people to care about conservation you don't want them to only care about pandas, but you'd rather they care about pandas than nothing at all. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's such a catch 22 that it's like, it's, it's such a, such a weird gray area. It's like, if you tell me you only care about sharks or panda conservation or whatever it is, I, I'm still going to be stoked that you're a conservationist and you're passionate about a species, but it's, it's still not the right mentality because, you know, just having that one species in the environment, in the ecosystem doesn't, do anything for the greater good it still leads to collapse you know you need you need a healthy ecosystem for balance and you need balance in order for the ecosystem to continue and all those species to thrive so it's it's really it's a double-edged sword but you know let me say this and be very clear about it here on your podcast i don't care who you are if you love wildlife even if it's just a single animal even if you just love your dog at home that's good you know what i mean it's better than nothing uh, so yeah so what would you say then if, say you had all of mankind listening and they, you, you were allowed to give like a rule, a conservation philosophy, you know, what would you be saying to everybody to, how can we, regardless of where you live, help out the conservation like movement and help animals and the environment and you know, is it a case of not using as much plastic or, you know, are these the kind of generic things everybody says or is it a better thing that humans should be doing to not make sure we're not messing up the environment and nature as much as we have been? So all of the, all of the thing, all of those generic statements, use less plastic, you know, don't get a straw, recycle, uh, you know, don't carpool, all those things, they're great, right? Every single one of those is great and they're there for a reason, there's science to support that. That being said, I think the thing that so, so often gets overlooked and the underlying problem, if I had all of humanity listening, regardless of where you live, I would say educate yourself because that's all it boils down to. If you spend a little bit of time, that same amount of time you'd spend on Facebook or watching TV, just reading a little bit about what you have in your area, what's critically in danger, what needs help, you know, 
it, if you give yourself that, it, it's not like you need to be a, a scientist or a PhD. You just need to have a basic understanding of the environment in which you live and what things need help and how you can do it. Because there is no one one stop, you know, one fix cures all. It's little things like knowing, hey, I live in Southern California and there's not enough water here, so I shouldn't leave my faucet running while I'm brushing my teeth. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes a huge difference if people just Google that. But most people that live in Southern California live in downtown Los Angeles or San Diego, and they don't even know that there's a water crisis. And, you know, that's a very microcosm example, but it's little things like that that add up to making a big difference, and you have to understand your own environment in order to make those differences. Don't use plastic bags. Don't water your lawn too much, you know. Pull over when there's a turtle on the road and move it to the side of the road. Don't run it over with your car, you know. Those little things add up people doing little things like that that don't actually interfere with their daily life add up to a big change because i love those kind of things it's i grew up with that kind of thing you know if you've seen a bit of rubbish you picked up and put it into a bin if you know because right. we used to have like feed bags for the sheep that sometimes got blown away like you know a neighbor's croft would they blow into yours so you pick them up a bit of twine you know you put them in the bin and it always amazes me that people will throw a cigarette butt down and they're about 10 yards from a bin. And just that kind of logic just it will never, ever not annoy me when I see it. And you, Right. But I love the way that you put it as, like, it's the small things. You know, because people always come up with these big things. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely not going to use straws again. And then they start going, oh, no, wait, Starbucks are talking about Trump. So, oh, no, I'm going to start, you know... I'm going to start using a straw again because that'll get against the left side and, you know... It's exactly, and that's ridiculous. It's like you're you're not hurting you're not hurting or helping anybody but yourself. I just I could never imagine. Mind you, I never thought we'd have a uh, American president who denies climate change and stuff like that. Do you find it difficult to kind of get that message out when you have people sort of higher powers who are kind of lessening the effect of it by you know dismissing it? It, it, to be honest, Ian, sometimes it feels like we're regressing into the dark ages when you have people that won't accept science, and uh, it sucks because I, I alienate my own my own audience sometimes when you know I go on. Uh, I'll get people to tell me evolution isn't real still, and it's like, you know, it's just mind blowing to me. It's it's science, you know, or climate climate change isn't real. It's to me, it's like this is it comes back to that education thing, and I know faith and education. When you have somebody that denies things like that, you know, I, I mean, I think we learned about it in science about the Galapo uh, finches, you know, about the different beaks for different times of prey and that. And I still get people who'll say, "Oh no, it's not real, it's not real." But you give them that as an example, and they'll turn and tell you about a post they read on Facebook, and tell exactly, you, yeah. and you're like, "Really?" It's, um, have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger, uh, wait, Dunning-Kruger effect, I believe it's what it's called. Have you ever heard of that, Ian? I've, he I've heard the name, I'm trying to remember which one that is. So, the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's, it's rampant on social media, um, and it's, it's a pity when it comes to wildlife, as what it is, is it's a field of psychology, uh, where people who have a low, a limited understanding or kind of an illusionary super, superiority ah, yeah, yeah. of their cognitive ability of talking about things. So what that means basically is, I read it on Facebook, now I'm an expert in it. You know what I mean? And you see this a lot. It's like, well, I saw I saw a thing in the Daily Mail that says crocodiles are, are going to eat 
every person on earth and now i'm an expert on crocodiles and that's that's the dunning kruger effect and it's tough because you know i have zero interest in getting into online battles with people but i get people who will write on my social media pages and stuff going oh you know evolution isn't real what you're saying is wrong um you know god would hate this or climate change is fake this is you shouldn't be talking about it on your show and it's like these are statements. They're not. They're not. These are not people with open minds that are willing to hear about something or discuss it. These are people making a statement based on no knowledge whatsoever, and that that is tough to combat. Well, I hope you're all having as much fun as I did recording this. I really loved doing this one. I couldn't stop smiling all the way through. But I thought now would be a perfect time to take a quick break. Um, I just wanted you to get the affiliate sales pitch that I have to give in every interview. Um, if you go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates, that's www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates, um, you can go to my affiliate wonderland. If you're on the main menu, you can click affiliate deals in the blue ribbon at the top. Or if you're on the post itself, there's a little box that'll take you to the affiliates uh, graphic and you can go there directly. There are so many special offers, listener exclusive deals and discount codes available there. They're really something for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're buying for yourself, a special occasion, or for someone else in your life. You can find out whatever you need right there. There's a lot of inspiring companies and interesting products you might not have seen before. There's companies such as Onnit, Amazon, MeAndies, Barbola Apparel, Dollar Shave Club. If you want help with dating, for example, there's the awesome The Natural, which is a dating product which helps you understand that you're the prize, that you can be the one the girls seek. Um, that's by RSD Marks. There's the Alpha Brain by the great people on it. Um, there's so much there. There's tactical gear, there's outdoor equipment, there's gadgets, and there's so much more. Um, there's barbell apparel jeans. There's something for everybody there. You might not even know that you wanted it, but you can find it there. Um, if you go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliate, um, you can get straight there. Please note, I don't receive any information about you or your purchases. You can buy what you want. There's some adult stuff there. There's some stuff there on dating. There's stuff there on self-development. There's stuff there, uh, gadgets and all sorts. All I get is a small commission back from the company for sending you through using my links. It's a thank you from the company. You don't pay anything extra. You don't get charged anything extra. And no information is shared to me. All I do is I use that money then to make the podcast better, get a better mic, get a better setup, etc. And get better and bigger guests by advertising, marketing, etc. If you've got the time and you want to say a thank you, I would love if you could leave a comment on the website. If you could leave a review on iTunes or use one of my affiliate links. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this waffle. I really appreciate you as a listener and I really appreciate you taking the time to check out my podcast. And now let's get back to the interview. So, how, I mean, how do you even start that? Is it a case that we need to, you know, put better education out to schools, or is it, you know, that I mean, I just don't get how we can fight that at the moment when so many people are only taking a side or believing something if it's somebody from their side said it. It's something that uh, kind of scares me when I look at like some of you know like Trump's Twitter feeds, and you this people just believe him just because it's he won apparently 
you know, and right. then the Democrats right. come back and they won't believe a single thing that any Republican could say because of X. We don't really have that as much in the UK, where right. I think we're kind of more open to kind of listening to both sides and, you know, if it's a fact, it's a fact. But we still have that right. sort of people who believe, no, no, if religion says it, that means it's true. So how do you even go about getting the next generation to understand conservation, to understand that you know we are destroying the planet and how we can fix it is like you know you're saying small ways conservation is well it... first of all ian i'm a lowly biologist not a philosopher so <laughs> i wish i had the answer for you but um you know i think i think you don't have the cases that i'm just given as people that talk on my social media and you know the people that you're talking about that'll retweet a trump a trump quote because they think that's fact that's a, I don't think that's a majority. I think that's a minority, and, and those are extremists. You know, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of closed-minded people, no matter where you live in the world. But, but I think, I think just being, you know, caring about things doesn't mean you have to be. You can be neutral, or you can be hard left, or hard right, or hard religious, or hard scientist. It doesn't matter. You can still care about something. You know. It doesn't. <laughs> you can take global warming and religion and evolution out of the equation and still care about, like, the panda, for instance, like we talked about earlier, because it's a great animal and you want to see it exist so your grandkids can see it. Um, you know, you don't have to be an extremist or an exact in the middle to just care about things and make small changes. And I think education, again, is the key. Education in schools, you know, I try and do education on my platform, which is my television shows, and I think just understanding and caring is where it all starts. So when you do find these kind of animals, what do you do from there on? I mean, I've seen, like, footage of you finding, like, you know, I think it was a footage of, uh, like, a, um, was it a leopard or a jaguar? Uh -huh. um, leopard, yeah. Yeah, sir, leopard. And, you know, how do you then take that and like disseminate it out you know how do we make that kind of go well look these animals do exist this is why we should be fighting because if that's close to extinction now you know look at yeah and you you know teach people a bit about the animal how do we then take that and say there we go you know we haven't killed it off yet let's protect it let's do xyz to protect it what what, how, what can we do from there on once we know they do this they, they are still there well, on an individual basis, that's very difficult. You know, I, I go through the rigorous scientific process that helps to remove the animal, that, you know, changes the animal status on the IUCN species list, and then I work with government officials, et cetera. On an individual basis, you know, how can you, the listener, or how can you, Ian, contribute to the Zanzibar leopard? That's tough. It's not easy, you know. Sure, you could send money somewhere, but you don't really know even how that money's going to get spent. But it's more about the message. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the basic human um, desire for hope. When you have an animal that we believe we've, we've driven to extinction, we have wiped off of the face of this earth because of negligence, because of hunting, because of pressure, whatever it is, and then you find out that in some tiny pocket of the world this thing is hanging on by a thread and it's, it's managing, and now with just a little bit of help we can bring it back, that is a message of hope that is stronger than any story anything you can read in a book or online or any YouTube video you can watch. And I think that resonates with people. I think that's why the show is successful and why so many people get behind the expeditions that I do because each one inspires hope. You know, mm. there's hope that it's still out there when we start the expedition. More, you know, more times than not, we don't find what we're looking for, but what we do see 
is all of the incredible things along the way. What is still left in that environment and what is worth saving and protecting? And it gives us this, this hopeful message that goes, you know, hey, with a little bit of care and a little bit of love, this can stay here. Yes, we've lost this thing or yes, this, this leopard is back from the edge of extinction, but let's just care about it enough to keep this environment as it is and not log it or destroy it or take from it. And, and I think that resonates really well with people. Because I think it was, was it Shawshank Redemption when they were talking about like how it, the how hope can like put or it might have been Harry Potter actually, but hope can put a light in the darkest of times. And I think that's what like what you were getting at was the it's amazing how seeing something like that can inspire the next generation or people just now to kind of change their habits because they want to see these beautiful animals thrive and that. But what I think you um, was reading about, you know, you can't rely on, like, footage. You can't rely on pictures. You have to have genetic materials to prove these animals are, you know, still about, etc. So what do you need to sh- to change the, the index to show that the animal's still existing? What kind of, like, things would it be, like, um, a, like an antler or fire? Or do you need, like, DNA ev- evidence? Or what sort of things would allow you to prove that that animal is still about? Um, well, it's up to a committee at the IUCN, IUCN, who I obviously work quite closely with, and, uh, you know, they need undeniable proof. So, you know, undeniable proof is DNA evidence. That can't be tempered with, it can't be changed, it can't be misidentified, that's undeniable. Um, but, you know, short of that, Say you're going into an environment looking for, let's say you're going looking for a wolf somewhere where wolves haven't been for 200 years. If you get footage of a wolf, odds are it's that wolf. Do you know what I mean? Odds are doesn't necessarily mean it's definitive, but the odds are good. And so that at least sparks interest. So it's tough. I'm not giving you a direct answer because there isn't one. You know, obviously DNA proof is the best, but it's also the hardest to get. How are you going to get DNA proof from a wolf? Well, you either have to find the scat or you have to somehow collect some fur or you have to get some blood. And if there's one of them in 100,000 acres, good luck. You know, it's not easy. Um, you might be able to get a bit of footage and that might help. But but it's just that's the thing. It's such a it's such a loose. Um, it's just difficult. It's just it's hard to say that something is definitely there without concrete proof. And concrete proof usually comes in the form of DNA. Because this is where it was really difficult, like, when I was prepping to do this, was it's whatever I kept getting, sort of, like, oh, I could ask about that, oh, I could ask about that, and I was trying to think, like, how do I make this sort of chronological and, you know, how, like, how to flow this, because I'm an animal lover, and there I could go on for days about a particular episode before <laughs> we even get to the main stuff, you know, and it's, so I'm trying to talk around into the sense of, the like the excitement that is there you know it's that kind of thing of we've screwed up we've lost this animal or it's no longer going to be about and then you go away and go let's have a look and see and then you find the animal and just that basic synopsis it's amazing when you find it but when you start thinking about the you know what that means for the ecosystem what that means for like potential offspring and natural um, selection and, and all these kind of things, how it's going to change, th- how can it, you know, change the world and potential cures for cancer and all these kind of things. It's amazing. And it, 
is that what you're sort of proudest of at the moment? I mean, what, which animal was the one that made it for you? You know, like if you had to pick one kind of particular interaction with an animal, what, which one would you go for? Oh man, that's so tough. You know, I I feel like in some ways it's ask, it's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child. Um, you know what I mean? It's like it's so hard to say. There's so many different expeditions and so many different instances, and you know, some of the wildlife that I've interacted with that's been my absolute favorite hasn't been things that are critically endangered or or close to extinction at all, and others, of course, have been the, the tortoise, which made headlines around the world, the Fernandina Island tortoise that we found and moved into the breeding facility, that, uh, you know, that was at one of my proudest moments of my entire life. You know, everybody, including, uh, and I, I, I'm reluctant to say this because I don't want to disparage anybody, but including the national parks who laughed at me and snickered when I said I was going to go and try and find it and then try to take credit for the find, you know, they, um, they, like, Everybody said that it wa- it wasn't going to happen. You know, oh, you're wasting your time. Don't go look. Don't bother. And then we found it. And like that's you know, it just goes to show you like not only are people have in some instances these people given up, but they're naysayers and, and find you laughable for even caring enough to go and look. And um, and then when you can flip that on its head, it's a very good feeling, a very smug, very um, good feeling. But. That, uh, you know, that's that's in the microcosm. On the big picture, things like the tortoise, and I can't say too much more because I, I'm not allowed to until they come out on television later this year, but the tortoise is, is a one that made headlines, so I can talk about that. That um, it's such a big moment for not just me and not just my crew and not just the Galapagos, but for the whole world, you know. The tortoise is the icon of conservation. Lonesome George, the last Pinta Island tortoise, was the poster child of conservation knowing this animal that can live to be 200 years and it's a lot 200 years old it's the last one of its species and then it dies in 2012 and a mate was never found and it's tragic you know to, to to flip that on its head and go and find this fernandina island tortoise another species that hasn't been seen in a, in a lot longer again being the galapagos tortoise one of the most unique species on earth being the poster child for conservation like that's such a big moment for the whole world and, and i i love that I just love the passion, you know. It's the pure, it's pure love for the animals. It, you can feel it when you talk about it, and I, I couldn't imagine finding something like that, you know, because that would blow me away. Just to see such natural beauty that we have now, and to see these, and then to think you're actually going and discovering something that maybe this generation of humanity has never seen before. You know, there's right. probably kids who have grown up that will never have a chance to see a particular kind of animal because we've hunted them to extinction or we've killed them off. or And that's terrifying that, like, our great-grandkids are going to grow up in a world that, you know, they might be amazing on computers but might never see some of this, like, because we've destroyed nature, we've destroyed ecosystems. and So how, what would you say to people who are wanting to, like, you know, who are thinking of getting into conservation what kind of tips would you give them to if they wanted to be like you to train up, you know, like, or is, can somebody have that as a career path or did you kind of just build, forge your own, you know, what, what would well, their I, tip? I definitely forge my own and so can anyone else, but mine's very unique and there's lots and lots and lots of fields of conservation, you know, whether you're 
hatching sea turtles on a beach in Mexico or working with elephants in Africa or just want to be a zoologist who, you know, takes care of things at a zoo. It doesn't really matter. It's all, they're all equally important fields. You know, like, like you just said, I created my own field in a sense because it was one that didn't exist in the sciences. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to do that. And it doesn't mean that you can't do that. If I can do it, anyone can do it. I'm just a kid from Zimbabwe who loved animals, you know. Um, and, uh, and anyone can do it. Um, but it's just, it's just about getting out there. You know, you say, what's, what's the tip? I think for the kind of people that listen to a podcast in the Western world that, don't, that um, have somewhat become removed from uh, the outdoors, just get out there. It's not that scary. I find so many people that I talk to that go, oh, my God, it's so scary. How do you do that? How do you stay out overnight? How do you live in a jungle for three months? You know, you don't have to live in a jungle for three months to experience it. You know, go for a hike, spend a night out in a tent, you know, go sit out in a blind and watch the birds fly in, like just experience it and get out there. And then you'll start to see how magical things are. You'll start to realize what your passion is, whether it is birds or reptiles or fish or mammals, and then just find something that works for you. If you want to be hands-on, if you want to be a zookeeper, start working towards being a zookeeper, you know, go volunteer at a shelter or go get a zoology degree. If you want to work with elephants in Africa, Find one of the great volunteer programs that will take you to Africa where, you know, even if you're just shoveling elephant poop for a few months, you're still working with elephants, you know, and that'll lead to the next thing. And that's the key. It's it's just like any other career, really. You just got to kind of pick your direction and, and, and go for it and stay committed to it. You know, I had my nose to the ground with this extinction thing, and uh, yeah, I didn't get paid for years. You know, I didn't make any money being a guy who just took his backpack and went into the jungle looking for stuff, but I loved it. It was my passion and eventually it turned into a career and, and I couldn't be more grateful for that. Cause it, uh, that to me sounds amazing. You know, it's like going in with a backpack, spending a couple of weeks, couple of months, you know, in a jungle, ca like catching and milking snakes and, you know, um, tag, like, you know, observing and tagging animals and setting up thermal cameras, like, it, that to me is amazing and I don't know, is it because of my upbringing of working closely with animals that you kind of build a love for it or, you know, is are things like you know, when kids are younger, like taking them to petting zoos and things like that where they're taught about animals maybe these kind of things would maybe help them because they could see the actual beauty of the animal Whereas most people only see these kind of things on TV or on a dinner plate, unfortunately. Oh, it makes a huge difference. I mean, th think about it. You know, if I flip on my TV and I'm a kid from some inner city, there's no difference in watching Avatar with blue people with, you know, ponytails that connect to dinosaurs run around as there is to watching one of David Attenborough's things. You know, they're just as fantastically produced. They're just as beautiful and they're just as entertaining as one each other. So why have a major passion for wildlife? You know, why not have a major passion for blue people in Avatar? And I don't mean that to be negative. I mean that in you really have to get out there and experience it. You have to get into the field and you have to see it for yourself because then then you know it is real. You know, it's not just another picture on your TV screen. And, um, and it's not that hard to do. That's the thing. People, one of the things I hate the most that people say to me is, oh, you're so lucky. You can afford to do these things. I'm not lucky and I couldn't afford to do them, but I figured out a way to do them anyway. You know, when I had literally no money, when I was a refugee from Zimbabwe, I, I it spent $7 total putting together my snorkeling stuff so that I could dive in California and see all the fish offshore. You know, just find a way to do it. Go to a park, go for a hike, jump in the ocean. It's not scary. Go and experience it. 
go to a petting zoo, like you're saying, and just start to see these things and realize they're real physical things that you can see and touch and work with and save. And they're not just a pretty picture on your TV screen like a blue person from Avatar. Uh, I love that. It's, it's sad to think that somebody could sit there and actually compare both of them almost. So what would you... How has it sort of changed you, like, seeing these things, you know, working with these tribes? What has it taught you about working, you know, like, working with these kind of people... How does it change your view of like the world and mankind in general? Um, I guess with, with regards to mankind, the way it's changed changed my view is people want to help if they understand why. And what I mean by that is, you know, going back to the example I gave earlier in our conversation about, um, you know, if you go in and say, "Hey, I'm I'm basically a tourist and I'm looking for this thing that you've seen." Have you ever seen one? And they go, yeah, I'd love to show it to you. You know, they have a passion for sharing something with you that you don't already know or have. And, um, you know, that that can be spread in any direction. Just like I have a passion for sharing my stories with you guys here today, it's the same thing. And I think people, the big point that I'm trying to get to is that people want to actually help if they're given the opportunity and they're given the, given the understanding because the, 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 it feels so good to help. You know, whether it's saving a bird off your porch or saving a species from extinction, like it feels really good. Like it's, it's, it's human instinct to help things and to nurture them and to protect them and save them. And it feels good to help. It feels way better than it does to kill or to take away. And um, I think if you're given the opportunity, and the thing that I've learned to answer your question about mankind is that people actually do want to help. They just need to understand why they're helping and what it does. Definitely, because... It's like you're saying, it goes down to educating people and kind of just understanding that you can make a difference, that you can change things. And, I mean, we see tourists all the time taking photos of, like, hiling cows. And, it, you know, to us, it's just, no, oh, it's another one on the road, is it? But to <laughs> them, it's amazing. It's, like, a different, you can see them, like, it's a different animal. It's a different world to see something so close that looks like like a bull up close. And you're just like... Oh, is that another one? Right, fair enough. Right, well, you're blasé, you're used to it. You, you kind of feel like it's a bad thing almost because you kind of get used to it, you know, it's like you're saying blasé, you, you kind of just think, oh, well, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I think that's the, the joy of it is, like, seeing people, that, getting people up close and getting them to teach about animals. So why do you think, like, things like Nessie and Bigfoot are more popular Rather than like the stories of the tortoises, uh, I can't even speak today. Tortoises and like the leopards, is it that we've created like a story and an identity around these animals compared yeah, to? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I, people get really upset when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like when you read a Harry Potter book. You know, it's a fantastical creature or beast or world that that doesn't really exist. And you know, I'm not a naysayer. Pro prove to me that it does exist. You know, if I get some some proof of a Bigfoot, I'll be the first one out there to go look for one, because that is my specialty. But it, it's not been proven, you know what I mean? This is not, they're not real animals, but they are fantastic, and it's just like aliens or anything else, a Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, it, it's, it's, it's such a fantasy to have these crazy creatures here and living here, and some people get obsessed by it, and I think take it to a whole other level. Because it, it's scary that people will actually believe 
something a Kardashian says over somebody that's actually got like proof. You know, it's it, crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. It's, it's like I said, the world's regressing. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I could go literally into pages and pages of questions about each individual episode, but I just wanted to give like people listening a, a kind of overview of the amazing work you do. Like you know that you're finding animals that we thought we'd lost to time. And you're showing them like that these things is, exist and how amazing they are. And you're teaching people about the conservation and the developing of the world and how we're messing up at the moment. But, I mean, it, it, can it be saved? Are we at the point now where we've done some serious damage or can we always come back from it? We Absolutely. We're, it's never too late to try. It's never too late to care. Um, yes. Have we done serious damage? Absolutely. Have we done irreparable damage? Sure, in some cases, that doesn't mean, I mean, that's what extinction is, that doesn't mean we give up, you know what I mean? There's a lot There's a lot of great stuff worth saving and a lot of things worth caring about, and uh, it doesn't take a lot for everybody. It takes a very little amount, a little, it takes a very little amount from each individual to make a huge difference. Because you've got me all like, this is why I love my podcast is, even if no one else listened to this, I'm like you. I'll be doing this day in, day out anyway because I enjoy right. it. I, you know, right. And everybody I speak to, I can get something from them and understand it. And even if it changes me, to me, that's enough. Maybe not sure. to people who want audiences. But, <laughs> um, so I know we're pushed for time just now, but what would you want people to take from this as a sort of go home message? You know, I'd love to have you on again where we can go deeper into things and how you you know track animals and how you analyze them and all this kind of stuff but what would you want people to remember and take as a go-home message from this one i think with everything we've talked about it's just you know if you listen to this podcast and you're interested in our planet and the incredible creatures that inhabit it and some of those that we've lost you know spend five minutes googling what's in your own backyard and what could use a help and what could, you know, what little things you can do. Because the information is readily available. It just takes people to consume it and figure out, you know, is it not using straws? Is it not using plastic bags? Is it volunteering at a local shelter? Just spend five minutes kind of learning about what is in your own backyard that would impact your life very, very little to help and realize that those things add up to making a big difference. And I've got to ask before my final question, What's the sure. peacock, what's your peacock's name? Uh, blue. <laughs> He's got a big blue neck, so we named him Blue. Ah, and is I can I, I always imagine that your kind of house would be filled with exotic animals and you know like all that kind of. I mean, what kind of pets? I don't know if you call them pets, but what what kind of animals do you keep? Uh, my wife did a math problem recently. She's a teacher in our school, and we have ninety-one rescued animals on our property. Right here in my office, I'm looking at three different species of turtle, two from Australia, one from Africa. I have an African lungfish. Um, our peacock is running around outside. We have a pot-bellied pig from Hurricane Katrina. We have a miniature donkey that was a rescue when he lost his mate. We have a miniature horse that was a rescue uh, from an abandoned petting zoo. Uh, we have, like I said, peacocks. We have guinea fowl, chickens, turkeys, aquariums, snakes. Um, we've, we've got a pretty good spread. And do you find that, are they sort of kept from each other, or do they interact in any kind of way? You know, Do you notice any changes in their behaviours when they are allowed to sort of interact with one another? 
Well, I mean, you know, the African lungfish doesn't hang out with the peacock very often, wow. but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, all of the quadrupeds and all of the birds all live in the same area. There's a menagerie where all the birds are and then a, a kind of a barn stable area where all the, all the four-leggers are and they all get let out and roam around the property together every day. And, uh, Sure, every now and then we have a fight. In fact, our Flemish giant rabbit loves to fly, fight with Blue, our peacock. I think they're just kind of testing each other, but nobody's ever drawn blood or got hurt, but our rabbit will come bombing up the driveway to tackle our peacock, and they will stand off with each other for hours, and it's absolutely hilarious. But for the most part, they all get along great, and uh, it's a very kind of paradisical little place that I live in. I love it. That sounds, to me, that sounds the best thing ever. I, I really want your <laughs> life. <laughs> well, I'm- I'll have to have you on again, and we can go deeper. But I, I just found every time I seen footage of you, you were such a warm and friendly guy. You were so into the animals, and you're a man after my own heart who just loves animals. And I'd love to be able to help and you know do some conservation work further than what I've done, like when I was up north. But what? Um, how can people keep in touch? How can they find out more? Get in touch on social media and that sort of thing. Yeah, thanks, Ian. I'd love to come back. It's been great chatting with you. Um, you know, I have all the regular social channels, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have a Twitter, even though I don't think I've checked it in about two years. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm actually really open to people. I, I try to respond to every single message that people send me, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram. So just search for my name, which is Forrest Galante, Forrest with two R's, G-A-L-A-N-T-E, and I'll pop up on any of those platforms. And, uh, I, I certainly always love to chat with people that are interested in, in my field and wildlife and, and what I do. So by all means, come find me. Well, it's definitely been a hard interview for me because I struggle to keep on one topic. I kind of bounced around <laughs> to things I was interested in. So there's so many little nuances and little things I want to go into. So I think uh, you'll be on again and again. <laughs> but, um, the floor is open to you. As this is a sort of final question, is there anything you'd like to mention? Anything that's coming up? Any TV shows? Um, any projects that you're currently doing that you'd like people to be made aware of? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and I think you did a great job, whether it was tough or not. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've always got fun stuff on the go. Um, you know, this week, this month, at the end of the month, is Discovery's biggest week, and uh, it's Shark Week. It's where they do an entire week of specialized programming on sharks. I'm very, very fortunate in this fact that I am hosting a special on Wednesday night during Shark Week this year, and it was a month-long expedition that I did throughout the Maldives and Sri Lanka in search of an extinct shark named as the Pondicherry Shark. It's a really, really exciting episode, and I'd love it for people to check it out. Shark Week's always fun. It's always very uh, toothy and uh, really exciting, and I, I hope that people check it out. And then in October, my series, Extinct or Alive, returns to Animal Planet. And uh, the tortoise that we spoke about, the Amazon expedition that we spoke about, Africa, which we spoke about, and about nine other episodes of really interesting, exciting expeditions will be coming up um, in October. And, you know, I... I People that like wildlife and, and have kids and like family-friendly programming and want to go on an adventure from their living room, I hope they check it out. That sounds awesome. But the more I can promote, the better, because you're doing amazing work. It really is blowing me away. And it's the fact that I can connect to somebody like you and just even help get the message out there and see some amazing stuff. And it, it blows me away. Just keep doing what you're doing, because 
you're inspiring the next generation and you're saving things from extinction you, you can't get a bigger compliment than that <laughs> that's true so. well thank you so much Ian. it's been a real pleasure being on with you today that's it for another week thanks for listening absorb it practice it use it until next time keep trying to hit that next level in your life <laughs>